This is Larry Camp, and welcome to the Nobody Knows Your Story podcast, which just happens to come with a side of Hawaiiana. Nobody Knows Your Story is a podcast which I believe will impact each listener in a positive way. As you listen to the experiences that have transformed, shaped, and guided each guest, perhaps you'll better understand your own personal journey. Some will surprise, some will make you question, and some will inspire, but all will leave you in a better place for listening in. As for the Hawaiiana, well, that's just a big part of my life story. So I invite you to check in each week and listen to the life experiences of people just like you. first episode of 2021, episode 34 of the Nobody Knows Your Story podcast. Even though I've included the Manao companies spread a bit of aloha before, I just felt that we could use a bit of, you know, a positive song with a nice positive message. A nice positive message is also what you're going to be hearing today from our talk story interview with Di Manuel. In the podcast today, I'm going to also insert a song called Panini Puakea by Brother Israel Kamakaviva Ole. This song is from Iz's 1993 Facing Future album, which contains White Sandy Beach, Maui Hawaiian Superman, and his biggest hit, Over the Rainbow. As I often say, please support all of the Hawaiian musicians by purchasing their music. As we start 2021, here's a couple of interesting facts about who's listening to our podcast. As you might expect, the majority of our listenership is, you know, from the United States. But one surprise, well, I guess several surprises to me, have been the listenership we have from outside the United States. We have listeners in places such as Cliché France, Leamington, Ontario, Canada, Vienna, Austria, and Perth, Australia. We're going to have a guest from Perth, Australia in the next couple of episodes. So, with that being said, let's listen to Di Manuel. Hey, aloha everyone, and welcome to another episode of Nobody Knows Your Story. 
And today is going to be one of those interviews where I'm talking with somebody I really don't know very well, but that creates an opportunity for me to kind of sit back and be like you guys, a listener, and kind of learning a little bit about the life of Di Manuel. So Di, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Larry. I'm super stoked to be here. And I guess, do I say aloha? I like it because it means hello and goodbye, does it not? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, it does. That's Many what I things. thought. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, well, I'm, but- I'm honored to be here. You know, I've had an opportunity to listen in on, on some of your past stories, but also your own personal story. And I, I just, uh, I, I just, I, I love hearing about people's inspiring changes, you know, just realizing that we take control of our own life and we dictate where we want to go and uh, seeing people just take that kind of action is always inspiring, but uh, it's really neat to see a platform that highlights people and and their stories. I just think it's so cool. So thank you. Oh, you're welcome. And thank you. Thanks for the kind words and glad you enjoy the podcast. And I, I think that people in general like stories and they like to hear about, you know, people and what they've done in their lives and you know, what makes them who they are. I guess we should say that you're from uh, Canada. I know that in you know, our previous discussions, I know that you grew up in Canada, but then as we hear your story, we'll hear that you, uh, you left for a few years and did some other things. So Di, just go ahead and, uh, take off and tell your story, man. This is uh, pretty cool. I, well, I, I guess like anybody, uh, I could go back to the beginning. Well, let me just start this way. You know, my life's been anything but a straight line, but I, I honestly feel that most of us uh, have lives that are filled with ups and downs and side to sides, overs and unders. And hey, we've we've run up against our own fair share of, of roadblocks as well. And, you know, I grew up in, in a small town in Eastern Ontario. So for those that know Canada, Toronto is, is sort of the, the biggest city that we have. And it's uh, in Ontario, Southern, uh, South East, Western uh, Ontario. And uh, along the big 401, big, big highway uh, is a small town. Uh, and the one I grew up in is called Bowmanville. Not not very big. I mean, it's obviously grown a lot since I left uh, about 25 years ago. But at the time, it was a pretty small town. With small towns come, uh, well, a lot of stereotypes, uh, especially narrower thinking and perspectives. And I was definitely a, a very much someone that was involved in that. And what I mean by that is, listen, it, there was... I was introduced to certain lifestyle habits at a certain age, especially in, in my later teens, you know, introduced to, to drinking and hanging out with, with certain association and certain people, trying smoking, trying drugs, like just certain habits that really are, are quite opposite from my, my lifestyle I live now. But when I think back on it, I, I'm not thinking negatively on it. It's just, it was a period. It was a season. You know, my, my parents were great they are a great people. My my father passed. I'll talk about that in a bit. But, uh, you know, they were very quick to provide my brother and I, my brother, two years, my my junior, uh, with pretty much whatever we wanted. We had a, a great upbringing. Uh, my parents were very supportive, very caring. And yet, you know, there, there was some challenges in their relationship. And so at age nine, and this is really probably the first real traumatic experience I can remember from my life. Uh, my parents sent me down at nine with my brother after school to share with us that they were going to be separating and divorcing. At age nine, and, and, you know, just to sort of put a timeline to this and give people some context or perspective, you know, this is over 30 years ago. And mm-hmm. at the time, divorce wasn't anything like it is now. I mean, it's, it's a very different world we live in, especially in North America and and the divorce rates have never been higher. Not here to talk about that, but back then, you know, there was only one other kid in my class that had parents that weren't together. 
And so it was pretty hard. You know, we didn't, there wasn't a lot of resources, a lot of opportunity to talk to anybody. So my parents, my dad had his own business. So he was very, very busy with that. And uh, my mom was leveling up her education as well as working full time and then trying to tend for my brother and I. Uh, you can imagine it left a lot of alone time for my brother and I, especially as I got into my, you know, 10, 11 years of age. But I found a quick way to sort of medicate. And, and what I mean by this is escape. Uh, and for me, it was food. I, I learned that certain types of foods created a, an emotional response, you know, would elevate my mood, make me feel better or get those little dopamine and serotonin hits. And uh, along with video games and movie watching, that became really my dominant lifestyle habit of choice from age of about 10 to 14, 15. So for, for about five years, that was like really what I did. And you can imagine doing those those habits. We all know this very well. If those are our dominating habits and we're not doing a lot of things on the opposite side to, to offset that, we usually see our health start to become challenged. And that happened with me. I, I be, was classified. I remember at age 15, Larry, it, this is the craziest thing. I remember going to the doctor's office because I had some breathing problems. I had asthma. Uh, my health was not in a good place. So it, it only got worse and worse. And my mom would take me to the doctor and the doctor pulling my mom outside of the office. And the funniest thing was is the door is open. I can fully hear what he's saying to her. He's like, Benny Ann, your son died. He's, he's morbidly obese. And at the time, I didn't know what morbidly meant. <laughs> I didn't know what obese yeah. meant, but I figured you put the two words side by side, that really can't be good, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I was in a state of unhealth uh, where I was very, very overweight. And I got there all on my own, you know? Like, I, I don't, I'm not here to point fingers or blame anybody. I fully chose to do what I did. And, and I did it very willingly. In fact, I, I liked doing it. And, and I guess that was the, the challenge is I become so accustomed to that, you know, at, to that point, that was like 50% of my lifespan, right? I was spent in that state doing those things. And so all the cliches, yeah, I was depressed. I was very lonely. I was very withdrawn. Gosh, I had days where I thought it would be a lot easier if I just wasn't there, you know, and uh, a couple in there, you know, prepubescent male entering into his puberty age, uh, things were hard, you know, in my life at that time, everything was a challenge. Everything was uphill. And uh, I really felt nothing was easy. And I, let me ask you this yeah. now, yeah. before your parents set you down on the couch at age nine, did you have any issues with your weight? No, none. Okay. None. So I, I was actually I think quite then obviously, child. yeah, this was a reaction to yeah. what happened there in your life at that time. It sounds like very much so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, I didn't unpack that until later on in life <laughs> when I eventually uh, realized that a lot of the patterns that I developed as that uh, preteen boy, and at least the emotional and psychological baggage, I, I packed up in a nice tight suitcase and I carried it well into my 20s and my early 30s. And we'll chat a bit about that, but you know, there was uh, some catalyst that led to me giving up alcohol 11 years ago. A lot of those habits, because I, I learned to, that self-medicating was a very real way to escape challenges in life, make myself feel better in the moment. And it used to be with food and video games. When I got rid of that, took control of my health again, I then went into a different phase where all of a sudden I realized, oh, well, alcohol was another tool. And I, I just had this ability to, to find things that would allow me to escape momentarily. Mm -hmm. and, and then drugs also led into that and eventually uh, also promiscuity, you know, just, just 
again, I, I'm, I'm sort of planting some seeds for what happened uh, about 10, 15 years later, but uh, that initial period of time, I, I remember one morning and because often people ask me, it's like, well, what was the, the, the moment where I decided to get healthy or, or change my predicament? And I remember my, my parents both had their own individual home. My mom uh, tended to my brother and I, we lived with her full time, but we would see my dad every other weekend. And I remember this one weekend we're at his condo and he's rushing me and my brother, cause he's obviously got somewhere he was planning to take us that Saturday morning, but I would have a habit of having a shower. And Larry, I had this great hack where if I was in the shower long enough and I had the water hot enough that by the time I got out of the shower, the mirror would be completely covered in condensation. It'd be all fogged up. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't have to see my reflection. It's crazy. But back then there's like two photos of me in that five-year period. Like I, I can't, my mom has no images. My dad has no images. Like we, we have really no photos other than a couple I've been able to, to find that, that are reflective of that period in my life. So I, I hated seeing myself, seeing my reflection. And so here I am getting out of the shower because my dad's rushing me and it had to be a quick rinse. So I get out and that is my peripheral, just off to my right side. I could see uh, my outline in the mirror and, and I turned and I locked eyes. And gosh, man, I, 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 I did the scan, right? Like I started to go down. So I'm telling myself off I'm, and I, I was really looking at myself, but, but more than that, I was seeing myself and I hated what I was seeing. I just absolutely felt disgusted, you know, and I remember locking my eyes on my gut. All of a sudden just broke. I broke out and uncontrollable, you know, the ugly sobbing, you know, like just, just lost it. And, and I remember thinking, man, life would just be so much easier if I just didn't have to deal with this. And then, you know, you, 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 I started to calm down after a few minutes and, and I started to just think, gosh, how did, how is this even possible? How, why am I like this? Who's going to like me? Who's going to love me? Because you know, at the time I was almost 15 years old and my friends were, were hanging out with girls and that. And I didn't have any of that. I often tell people, you know, a big motivation for me making a lifestyle change is I just wanted a girlfriend. <laughs> you know, sure. like, uh, on the surface, it seemed like that was all I wanted. But, you know, underlying it, I, I wanted to be wanted. I started reflecting on what life would be like if I just didn't have to live it anymore. And, and to be really to the point, that, that scared me. It scared me a lot. Uh, it scared me a lot more than the alternative choice, which was, well, maybe I try to learn to do things a little bit differently than I've been doing it to try to be healthier try to be a little bit happier. Like maybe that's a better option. But to be honest, that that scared me too uh, because there was a whole lot of unknowns. That was something completely outside of my comfort level, like doing things differently, like actually trying to learn how to exercise, <laughs> learn how to eat differently. Like where do I even begin? Because that was stuff that wasn't spoken about in school very much. It wasn't role modeled in some of the association I had. So it was just like, oh my gosh, like where do I start? And, but I was less afraid of the idea of not knowing what to do than I was of the idea of, of potentially ending my life. Let me ask and you so, this, I mean, yeah. this, like you say, this is a tough time. I remember being in that age, 14, 15, 16, if I had a zit on my face, I was self-conscious. So I, mean, <laughs> I totally understand, you know, our body image yeah. and our, you know, guys always want to get muscular. And, but yeah. again, a lot of what we want is kind of propelled by our wanting to be looked upon favorably by girls, right? That's or, right. Or Absolutely. whatever our, you know, whoever we're yeah. trying to impress, but big time insecure part of our lives anyway. And then when you add on to it, like you say, 
some weight issues or, or whatever. It just takes it to a, another level. And I was going to ask you early on, and I, I didn't, I forgot. Did you have any kind of a religious upbringing with your family or anything like that? I mean, was this in, in, in part of your life at that time? Not consistently. Uh, my, my mom uh, raises Christians. My dad was an atheist. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it was always a little bit of conflict there. And what I mean by conflict is just my dad was not, every once in a while, he, he would go through the motions of going to church just to appease my mom. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, he, he really didn't uh, have any religious ties, uh, very much non-secular. And uh, as far as my mom was concerned, yeah, it, largely Christian-based uh, upbringing for her life. And uh, But we weren't always practicing. Now, what I mean by that, just, just, showing up and being an engaged member of those communities. Uh, there was a big period of time, especially when my parents separated and ultimately divorced. There was a big period of time there. There was, there was no church, you know, and, and because my mom was working extra and going to school and, you know, my dad wasn't there anymore. And uh, it, there's a number of factors. I'm sure my mom would have a different answer, but there, there wasn't a lot of, of religious talk in my household, even though so, we were raised as Christians. But yeah, uh, so you didn't have it, that influence then that maybe, that was maybe keeping you from taking that step of maybe, you know, hey, life's not worth living or whatever. Mm-hmm. So sometimes people that have a real strong religious background, they, they really won't go there because of right. maybe a fear of, you know, what God might think of that or whatever. So that wasn't a part of it. It was just maybe there was a part of you that really wanted to live. Very, very true, Larry. And and there was, you know, like there was definitely, I, I did, I remember, and many of those times thinking, well, what about my brother? You know, what about my friends? What about my mom, my dad? Like just thinking about the effect it would have on others. And, mm-hmm. and I've always been someone that naturally can empathize with others very well. And uh, I think in those situations, I definitely just felt very fearful of the finality and, and just the repercussions of such an act, like that, just the effect it will have on others and, and being concerned about that, <laughs> you know, cause often I, I, and I, this is reflective in other periods of my life where I've been very quick to prioritize the needs of others over myself. And, and I, I know this is probably a song that many of us have that tune going on in our own lives. Uh, but uh, you know, the self care habits were never there for me until I prioritized them you know, made them something that was important. Uh, it, it was something that I learned, you know, but it had to start with me just wanting to make a, a change. And that morning, like literally like that morning, I remember coming out of that bathroom, getting dressed and then having a conversation with my dad. Like, I, I, I want to get healthy. I want to get fit. And up until that, my point to that point, my parents were supportive. Like they were the, the typical parents that would say like, Hey, can we put you into karate? Can we, uh, you know, maybe we'll, we'll, we'll get this nutritionist. We'll get them to help us with some food with you. And, you know, they were always coming to the table with these things that they were trying to encourage me to do. But every time they came to me, I would take it as an attack. Like, Oh, you're just saying I'm fat. You're saying I'm out of shape. You want me to change, you know, like thinking of it as a negative when they were really just trying to support me trying to help me because they saw the pain I was in, but I couldn't see that. Right. And, and so I was very quick to push them away. And, and, and I would often say things that uh, weren't very nice. You know, I was very rebellious and uh, hated the idea of, of other people trying to force me to change getting out of the washroom that day, you know, after losing it, uh, I came out with this sort of optimism, 
like, okay, enough's enough. You know, I'm, I'm going to draw this line in the sand and, and I'm going to step over it and I'm going to be a new person. I'm going to do new things. I'm going to live life a little bit differently. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm going to do it. <laughs> My kids, they laughed because I was like, I went to the library. I got books out on fitness and nutrition. And, and they're like, why don't you just Google it, dad? I'm like, your dad's older than Google, you know, <laughs> it's, and they just don't quite comprehend that. But uh, I, I remember bringing all those books home and diving into it. And uh, my parents were really supportive. Like I, I was too intimidated to do any sports. And up until that time, I was always the guy to be last picked if he was picked at all. And, and so I, I never played team sports. And even gym class, a lot of the times I, I was so self-conscious of, of changing in front of others, I would often get my mom to write a note uh, saying that my asthma was bad and I can't participate that day, you know, like, so I, mm -hmm. I was very good at gaming the system so I could do the least amount. <laughs> All of a sudden here was a switch that flipped and I was like, I'm going to get healthy. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm going to do this because I want to do this. My parents offered to buy me a mountain bike and I was like, yes, thank you. I started biking every day. You know, I'd put on the old Sony AM FM. You, know, you remember the, the old classic cassette tape, like the Walkman, remember yeah, the, the original Walkman, Sony sure. Walkman. And uh, my dad would lend me it. It was his. And uh, I had a tape and, and, you know, one song was a, a great Canadian band called Tragically Hip, their album up to here. And on the other side, I, I had an album by Alice in Chains. And, and I just knew that I'd go out and I'd start cycling. As soon as one side ended, that was my signal to turn around and go home. So, you know, I'd be out for anywhere from 60 to 90 minutes, depending on the length of the tape I had. And it was hard. It was super challenging. You know, there's a lot more time me getting off the bike and walking it than what's me riding it when I first got started. Sure. But I had this vision in my mind of getting healthy, of being happier. And, and so I just trusted that this process based on all the books I read, all the success stuff I'd seen out there, even my mom watching her sweating with the oldies. Remember with the old, uh, uh, Jane Fonda, I think, Richard, or Richard, Simmons? Richard Simmons, yeah. Richard Simmons. Yeah. I always want to say Gene Simmons myself, but, uh, <laughs> a very different person. Uh, yeah. uh, but I remember watching that and seeing his weight loss transformation seeing some of the, the, in his old infomercials, also seeing the, the testimonials of people that had lost all this weight, just dancing to the oldies. And I was like, geez, I'm getting out on my mountain bike. I'm 15 years old. I should be able to have some of these kind of results too. Fortunately for me, you know, after about three weeks, there, there was this hill and it was called the concession street hill. And, and it was massive right now. Now it's, please take, take note. I know you, you, you've lived in, in, uh, States that have volcanoes and very big mountains. So th those are mountains. Okay. I live in the West coast of Canada. Now we have mountains here, you know, we have the Rockies, but at that time in little town of Ontario, uh, we had a big hill and it was like the hill, but it's not a very big hill. But for me as that 15 year old morbidly obese teen cycling up to that hill, it was like Everest, right? <laughs> I'm like, here I am. I'm going to go up this hill. I remember getting a third of the way up that very first time I came to that hill and, uh, having to get off my bike, but rather than turning around going home, I was like, I'll just walk the bike up. And then next day I came back and I was like, can I get a little bit further? And then the next day, a little bit further, about three and a half weeks in, I remember finally on one try without getting off the bike, I made it to the top of that hill. Mm -hmm. And right then and there, that was the first time I really realized that change is possible if I want it to be, you know, like that, that was it. Like in Canada, we have a network called TSN, the sports network, you know, you have ESPN down in the States. Mm -hmm. Well, the, the, on TSN, they always call it the TSN turning point, right? It's like where, where the tides turn for those competitive teams. It's like that one play just changed the odds. And now, you know, the underdogs are now winning the match. And that was my TSN turning point, you know, at 15 years of age, like, gosh, change is possible.
if we allow it to be. That sort of was that catalyst. And, and it took 20 months. I, I want people to know, like, it wasn't something that happened overnight. It wasn't like, oh, yeah, one weekend, and it's like biggest loser, losing 30 pounds in a week. No, no, it was, it was gradual, it took 20 months. But after 20 months, I had this new lifestyle, I had new, new confidence in myself. And I got very good at working on the exterior. Because that's all I was focused on because all I wanted was a girlfriend. <laughs> you know, so yeah. I, I was very good at working on everything on the outside of me, everything that people could see. Uh, and I, I just packaged up a lot of the emotions and some of the psychological trauma that I'd been enduring and dealt with. And I just boxed it up, put it aside and just tried to pretend it wasn't there. And uh, I became very good at masking it until I couldn't, you know, and that really got me into my twenties. Also, you know, I realized that alcohol was something that allowed me to, let down my guard and be more open with people and get connected with people, even though it may not have been the right types of people. That's just what I learned. That That's sort of leading up to my late teen years. That was really what happened until I graduated high school. Part of your timeline though, is when you did graduate high school, I know that's when you went to the West coast. Yes. And if I remember from either we talked about it or I read it, you just felt like you wanted to go somewhere maybe where nobody knew you. It's true. And the funny thing was, you know, I keep joking about, you know, I wanted a girlfriend and I had to date upgrade. Like I had to go to the older grade because they didn't know who I was. You know, once I got into high school, it was kind of neat. I mean, there was only really one major high school in my, in my town. I mean, there was a couple others. It was like the Catholic private school. Then there was our high school and there was one other high school, but it was really for the outer towners, those that lived more in the country. And, and, and so in there, you know, you had this merging of all these other public schools into the one high school. And, Largely, those first few years there, I was known as one of the, 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 the bigger kids. You know, there's me and one other kid. I remember in my grade being of similar state of unhealth, you know, of, mm-hmm. of obesity. And it was tough. You know, all the girls that were in my grade that I'd been in many grades with previously, they always thought of me as that guy. I was always going to be in the friend zone. <laughs> You know, right. and uh, but I remember taking a, a level up, taking physics grade 11, and while I was in grade 10, and uh, met this girl, and she didn't know anything about me. We hit it off, and and so then I started associating with her friends, her group of friends. It just completely started changing my association, but this new group never knew of me before, and, and so I found that really refreshing feeling like, oh, I can really be who I want to be because, and there's no prejudgment you know there's no pre-existing beliefs around who i am and so that excited me you know i liked that it felt really cool to be able to sort of lean into that space and and be creating the person i want to be and and not have to worry about anything i had already done mm-hmm. but of course you know still being a small town and that going its course over the next couple of years of high school I, I eventually graduated and i was like you know i just i can't be here anymore i, I just there's just too much baggage too much history I, I want my own life i want to start fresh i want to go somewhere where nobody knows anything about me and start over you know and and that was where the attraction was i saw an opportunity to go to school out in vancouver at university of british columbia our provincial university and uh fortunately for me got in late admissions you know i was 18 at the time and my dad came out with me. That was super cool of him to do. He, he came out, helped me find a place, got me settled in for that first week in a bit. And uh, that was it. Never, never looked back after that, you know, but uh, mm-hmm. that was the big draw, you know, go West young man, you know, <laughs> a little bit differently, but I always like, yeah, I'm going West. I'm going to the mountains. I'm going somewhere where nobody knows me. This is going to be great. Well, Hey, you know, different climate too, for sure. Yep. <laughs> 
<laughs> far less snow if i want snow i go to the mountains if i don't want it i just stay downtown you know i'm all good yeah well and you know now now that you're kind of you know you're, you've been biking for a couple of years and different yeah. things so i'm sure that uh being in vancouver made it a little easier you know for the yes. physical part of maintaining your weight now yeah and my lifestyle like you said also you you had yeah. to get that internal change too right that mindset change at some point had to kick in yeah and and to be fair you know it didn't I still was pretty good at not dealing with anything emotional. And and when I think about it, you know, my my dad and I, we had a good relationship, but I wouldn't say we had a great relationship. My my dad, the way he was raised is, you know, there wasn't a lot of emoting, like you wouldn't often share or express your emotions. And that was just, you know, we would say, I love you, but it was in passing, you know, you know, like those kind of conversations you have on a call and it's like the call's getting to an end and you're just about to say goodbye. And you know, it's like, okay, love you, dad. Bye. You know, yeah. that's how we'd say it. He'd be like, yeah, love you, bud. You know, and just a quick, there wasn't, we'd sort of skirt over it. Mm-hmm. And I don't doubt that there was very much love between the two of us, but it wasn't something that we would articulate. And, and also you know, I remember some of my early memories, my dad and my mom, if they get into a fight, my, my dad would be very quick to, to exit the situation. You know, he'd leave the situation. He'd ghost. <laughs> he'd go for a drive or he'd just go for a walk. Like he'd just, rather than dealing with the conflict, he'd exit the conflict. And and so that was something that I found in myself too. It's a natural tendency I have. And it was modeled to me from an early age. And it wasn't until I started reflecting and doing some of the inner work that I've come to these realizations of like, where did this habit even begin? Where did this this way of dealing with this kind of stress or pressure come into my toolbox? You know, and they were all, sort of learned. And uh, in my early 20s, I am I, naturally an introverted individual, even though I tend to work as an extrovert. I'm someone that tends to bounce back and forth between the two. But if I was given a choice, I would naturally nestle in more on the introverted side. I found it challenging sometimes to meet and talk to people. I realized, you know, in those late teen years, especially as I was associating with older kids and different groups, there was this common thing. Like if you had alcohol there, it was a lot easier to get to know people. And so I had this locked in early on that, hey, if, if I've got challenges meeting people, just go out, have a couple of drinks, meet somebody for the first time. Let's just go have a beer together, you know, like, and, and so even though I had this fitness and healthy living lifestyle and mindset, I had these other tendencies that <laughs> would offset a lot, often a lot of the good I was doing. Mm-hmm. And it was how I learned to, to sort of cope with, with some of the challenges I, I'd worked through and, and it would progressively get more and more. So I would work really hard, but then I could party harder. That was a period of my life for those first five years of my twenties, as I was getting into more of a career mode, I, I, I learned I had a knack for sales and I got into selling fitness equipment. And I was very much in doing sports that were all individual based. So like I got into golf and mountain biking and uh, rock climbing and like jujitsu, boxing, like a lot of things that were just individual. I, I, again, I still don't do much team sports, if any at all, because just haven't. I tend to do things that are solo based, just me. Mm-hmm. And um, so I got into this lifestyle, you know, of working hard, making good money, but living for the weekend. And uh, then the weekends would come and I'd completely undo any good I did during the previous five days. But this is now my life. It was my pattern. A lot of good things are happening, but also a lot of things that were not healthy, you know, not, not great for me would often leave me feeling a lot less satisfied and unfulfilled 
even though in my mind I was like, oh, I'm chasing success. I want to be a successful man. I want to be a great man. I want to be a great dad one day. I want to be a husband. Like I want a home. I want cars. Like, you know, just who I was in my early 20s. It was like this vision I had for who I wanted to be. The more I chased after it, the, the further I realized it got away from me. Created a lot of these ill feelings. And, and again, the easiest way to escape those feelings, I'd uncork a bottle, you know? Then met my wife and, and it was amazing meeting her. Here I was like, wow, there, this is this is it. This is the woman I'm meant to be with. I'm going to date you for the rest of my life, you know? And, and we started having kids early on. Gosh, when the kids got to four and six, like my, my lifestyle habits kept going. So even though I wanted to play house, I wanted the kids, I wanted all these things and my career was picking up, you know, my company was doing really well. And, and yet I still had this tendency to want to go out, hang out with certain people, you know, and uh, oh, I got a supplier in town. I'm going to go out tonight. Uh, I'll be home by X time. And then I wouldn't come home or I turn my cell phone off. Like, and, and I'm just sort of trying to paint a picture. Like I, I was doing things, you know, on one side, I was trying to, to live into this vision I had for, for what I believe to be a successful man. But meanwhile, not really fully committing to it, providing a little bit of an, a back door where I could always sort of escape and burn off steam. And I would justify it any way I could. It ultimately left a lot of conflict it, just for me internally. So that little thing that I was able to bundle up as that obese teenager, just work on the exterior, work on people's perspective of me, trying to make it so everybody likes me and everybody thinks I'm cool, uh, but never dealing with some of those little voices that were in my own mind. Eventually, that that suitcase that I kept jamming stuff into, well, it, it couldn't be closed anymore. And that's mm-hmm. when I eventually got into my early 30s and uh, hit what I call my rock bottom, you know, after a, a decade of overindulging in alcohol and realizing that that was my favorite coping mechanism and not willing to, to accept some of the other changes that were staring me in the face. I uh, got to a point where I was like, I can't run from this anymore. And, well, if I had um, to guess, I, I would think that your wife was probably not happy with a lot of the things that you were doing. That had to be something that propelled you into wanting to, like you say, you know, commit to being the dad, to being the father, the uh, husband that, you know, you had envisioned. You know, wives are only going to put up with probably so much for so long. So maybe that was part of that rock bottom. It was part of it. And to be perfectly honest, you know, at the time... I would often say that family was one of my pillars. I would be like, I live for family because it was always something in my mind. I'm going to be a dad one day. I'm going to be a husband. I'm, I'm like, I was excited about that idea. You know, I was looking forward to it. And yet even when it arrived, I was trying to sabotage it, you know, like just doing things that were completely out of character or lacking integrity. And I'd say one thing, but do another. And the more I do that, the more ashamed I'd feel or embarrassed and depressed and withdrawn. And oh my goodness, it just, it, it felt really hard because here I am being a health and wellness individual, you know, someone selling fitness comment, very active in the various fitness industries and communities within Vancouver and Western Canada and, and building a reputation for myself. But meanwhile, on the flip side, I was also building a very negative reputation, trying to find that balance between the two, which was just challenging. And yeah, my wife was pretty upset a lot of the time, but I was very good at begging for forgiveness. The only saving grace was she always has, and and I think this goes for anybody that's in a a long-term committed relationship and you you know, you you know, you're with each other and your life feels whole, you know, like you just feel like, yeah, it's like the puzzle piece that it's that last piece that needs to get put into that puzzle. And, and, and you put it in, it's like perfect fit. It's like, wow. And now I can see the whole picture. And, I always felt that way around Christy and and she always saw in me the potential I would never saw in myself. 
And because of that, really feel that that's the big reason why she was so committed to, to sticking it out. Even as much of an idiot as I was at times, you know, we had kids together and I, I often asked her, even in the last 10 years, you know, when I've had opportunities to, to talk about this with people and share some of these, these stories or, or, or experiences. And I'm often asked, you know, like, or Christy will often get asked, like, why do you even stick around? Her answer has always been like, you know, our kids at the time, you know, especially when I was at my worst, you know, they were both under the age of six. She would often say, and she's told me this is she knew that eventually our kids would be older as much as she could have easily. And we could have gone our separate ways at that time. She would always say, you know, 10, 15 years from now, if the kids were to ask either of us why we divorced, why we separated, why we've gone our own way, you know, like why that happened. She wanted to be able to say that, but also to share that she had done everything on her part, that we'd done everything that we possibly could have to make that the last possible outcome. Does that make sense? Like it it was a matter of us, you know, her being able to look our kids in the eyes and say, listen, we tried everything. Mm -hmm. We just came to a conclusion that, you know, we were, we weren't meant to be on this path together any longer. You know, if she couldn't say that to them, she felt that we hadn't done enough to fight for it. And and so she was always very into that and, and willing to work on the relationship. For me, it was always fleeting. You know, I would do it after a, I'd make a big mistake. I'd stay out too late or not come home or whatever. I'd do something stupid. Then there'd be a couple of weeks where I'd be a great dad, a great husband. I'd be doing all these things, doing all the right things. And then as soon as I had a, enough of a runway again, it's like, okay, I've earned myself a couple nights out, you know? And, and this is just my train of thought. So I'm just sort of giving you some insight into this is what's going on in my mind, right? And uh, mm-hmm. then it was almost 11 years ago to the day, you know, she sat me down one day and she was at her wit's end. She's like, this is it. Like, I'm done. We can't do this anymore. It was after a night of being all out all night, you know, drinking and turned my phone off so I wouldn't have to deal with the text messages, the calls. And I could always say, oh, my battery died. It was one of my favorite excuses, by the way. And uh, so she sat me down at the Christian table that morning and kids were watching Dora the Explorer. (laughs) It's off in the background. I still remember that jingle. most annoying song on the planet. I won't repeat it because it'll get stuck in your head. But so here I am, you know, with Dora playing in the background and my wife telling me, you know, we need some big changes, that, that, but we, I am no longer willing to accept this as our normal. This is not the environment to raise our girls in. And then she asked me a question, Larry. She said, Di, are you being the type of man you'd want your daughters to marry? Are you being the type of man you would want your daughters to marry? The song kept repeating. Or I say song because it, it felt like a song. It felt like one of those songs that just gets stuck in your head. You know, The question kept rattling around. And for once. And it was like, all of a sudden things became clear again. And I was like, man, if someone like me at that time showed up on my doorstep and said, Hey, I I love an opportunity to take your daughters out. And meanwhile, they were like who I was at that time and who I was role modeling to my kids as being the okay guy to, to eventually spend your life with. No way. I wouldn't have let them even across the threshold. You know, there's just no way. And yet that's who I was. That's who I was living. That's who I was modeling saying it was okay. Like, it's not a man thing. It's not a woman thing. It was, it's like a human thing, right? Like I was just not being a good human. It was right then there. I made a commitment to them. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to go one year, no drinking. One year. You know, and, uh, since my age of 17, I'd never gone <laughs> probably more than a week without having a drink. 
And so here I was making a commitment to go one year. And uh, my, my oldest daughter at the time, six years old, she had a weak eye back then. And uh, so she had these big prescription glasses on. So they made her eyes look like 10 times bigger, right? She's looking up from the couch and she's like, okay, daddy. So, okay, I, I think I get this. So it means no juice, no pop. And I'm like, no, 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 I, no adult drinks, you know? <laughs> and so having to go through that qualification with her to really help her understand what what was this commitment I was making. And, and then, you know, they were like, okay, well, that's great. Can we finish watching our show now? You know, so right away for, for them at that age, they were just like, Next. Uh, mm-hmm. But my wife, you know, she wasn't, she'd seen me make changes and make promises before. And, and so she was a bit wary, uh, but there was something different. She could tell that I was, I was very committed to this. And I'll tell you that, that one year is one of the most challenging years I've had in my life, but it's also one of the most worthwhile years I've lived in my life because it was in that year that I finally decided to pull that suitcase that was overflowing with all the emotional baggage, all the damage from, from various periods in my life leading up to that point. And, and I had to deal with it. And so psychologist, uh, I started working with a relationship counselor. I, I attended some meetings. I, I had to look at all my association in my life, all the people that I thought were friends. And, you know, you, you stopped drinking while well, they stopped calling. And <laughs> I started realizing that, whoa, there's some big shifts that need to happen. But alcohol was always my crutch. You know, whenever I felt uncomfortable, well, I could always have a drink. I feel okay. Things will be all right. I can deal with this tomorrow. You take away that crutch. And I was like, whoa, I got a pretty gnarly limp. I got to learn to walk again. And and so that was that process of, of just trying to figure out, whoa, what do I need to do for me to actually start to live into all these things that I've said are important to me that I haven't been prioritizing? Like family, my fitness, my faith, uh, just even my finances, even the ability to have some fun. And yes, there's alliteration there, five Fs, but uh, it's, it helps me remember everything. Uh, but those were the things that I always said were important, but I wasn't prioritizing or, or treating as important. So that was a big shift, Larry, and and it opened up a whole new journey for me, you know, which has been the last eleven years, and I can get into that in a little bit here. But uh, that that's sort of the first thirty years of my life. I know abbreviated, of course, but uh, that gives you sort of a snapshot.
decision that you wanted to lose that weight. It happened when the mirror wasn't as fogged and you saw your own image and you didn't like what you saw. And then you got the bike, you started riding first time, you know, you had to walk up the majority of that hill, but eventually after three and a half weeks, you made it to the top. I'm guessing that this was very similar. When you say, I'm going to go a year without drinking. I mean, that's kind of like, if I could do a year, then most likely if you think of the hill, then I'm going to be able to get up to that top of that hill eventually. And now you've strung together 11 years. So I think that that says a lot about your personality, though, too, that you're you're driven if you're committed to something. You just have to get yourself to be committed. Yes. Very, very true, Larry. And uh, very, ob- uh, you know, very astute observation because uh, it, it was very much that moment uh, of, again, y- you know, trying to look at myself. But rather than having the mirror, I was really just seeing myself through the eyes of Christy. And for mm-hmm. once in my life, actually positioning myself in a way that allows me to see myself as others might be seeing me versus, you know, building up all these false assumptions around who I am. And again, I I created a lot of opportunity for me to disappoint myself. It was an escape. Uh, There was always an escape. There was always, I always left myself a little bit of room to back out. And uh, where in this instant, I I decided, no, there there can't be any wiggle room. You know, this has got to be straight up, got to do this. And why? because I want to do this. And, and as much as I made a commitment to them, it was really a commitment to myself uh, to, to stick to this. Similar to, yes, when I was 15 and I was like, okay, no more. I'm not going to look in a mirror again and, and feel this way ever again. I'm going to do something about this. And uh, so it was very much like that. But I, I also realized I just, I didn't have the awareness or the, the know-with-all. And, and to be honest, I didn't have any association in my life that I could lean on to, to know what to do next. So it's great. I've removed alcohol from my life. Now what do I do? I, I realized that this is like a paradigm shift. This is like full on. This is a 180 moment. And it was intimidating. Like it really was. I, I mean, I think back in those first few months, especially like it, it was, I just didn't even know how to act around people. You know, especially a lot of people that I was associated with having to tell them I'm not drinking, you know, because it would end up coming to that. We'd go out for a meal or a lunch or I'd meet them somewhere and, and then have to go through the story. And But it, it was always just like, I'm just making some health choices, some health decisions this year. I want to focus on alcohol, but they, I would only ever let in as much as I was willing to let in. And because uh, again, I was still really concerned about the facade. 
right? Like I just, mm-hmm. I worked so hard to build up this sort of perspective on who I was as a man, as a business owner, as a dad, as a husband. And, and really it was just all just smoke and mirrors. And that was really hard, you know, from an ego perspective, especially as this, like my identity was tied to so many aspects and uh, whew, it was challenging, you know, but it was really cool though. Cause after about six, seven, eight months in something clicked because I had new association. I, I joined an organization called Toastmasters. I don't know if you're aware of that, Larry, but it's yeah, speaking. Yeah. It's a, uh, they, they help people become more effective communicators as well as they help you develop leadership skills. And, you know, I, I realized that without alcohol, I, I would get really anxious in front of larger groups. I would become flustered. I wouldn't be able to speak or articulate myself. And, and I knew that there was something I wanted to share with the world. I want to be able to share certain things. I want to share certain stories. I want to be able to help inspire, motivate, educate people. And yet there was this barrier preventing that. And alcohol was always sort of that key that I could rely on that. If I get a couple of me, I can talk to anybody. Well, but that's because a, that's, we call that liquid courage. Yes, that's right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and now you've taken that away. So now you've got to do these things on your own. <laughs> and it's tough. Like it was tough. And it was like, well, how do I do this? And I was fortunate enough. I was part of a, a mastermind group at the time. And we, we would always have a monthly speaker come in. We had this guy come in and, and he just published a book about public speaking. And so I remember him coming up and talking in front of us. And I was like, whoa. And he was about 20 years my senior. So he would have been like early 50s this time. I'm, I'm early 30s at the time. And I was just like, wow. Like he captivated us. You know, those kind of people that they stand up, they talk and they just command your attention. They don't demand it, but just the way they carry themselves, the way they talk, the way they look at you, the way they posture themselves. Like, I was just like, whoa. I want a little bit of what he's got. <laughs> and I know, right after his presentation, I rushed up to him and I was like, Hey, h- how do I do what you just did? You know? And he's like, well, Toastmasters. I was like, what is Toastmasters? <laughs> you know, I'm like, what is that? And this is on a Friday afternoon. So I rushed home. He gave me the website. I went to the .org's website, looked up my, the local Toastmasters to where I lived. And, uh, that, and I found out that next meeting was that Monday morning. So literally three days later, right? Like Monday, early edition Toastmasters in White Rock, Canada. And uh, I, I signed up, I showed up and I was like, this is my tribe. This is my people. This is where I need to be. And, and so it was that first real positive association, I, I started to embrace in a big way. And, and I really commend myself to that. I was like, okay, well, this is scary. I, I, I don't like this idea of standing in front of 30 people I don't know and being asked a question. And now I have to speak you know, off the cuff in front of these people. <laughs> it's a big part of Toastmasters. They want to help you work that muscle, right? To be able to speak off the cuff. And, and I was so petrified. And I remember getting up there and they're like, your first challenge, just try to stay up for a minute. And I remember looking at the clock and I'm 20 seconds up there and I'm like, can I sit down yet? You know, like it was, there was a lot of fear there, right? And, uh, and, and I remember even joking with myself. I'm like, man, I should have just had a drink before I came, you know? But, but that was my old way of thinking. And I realized that, you know what? These people... They're all dealing with the same stuff. We're all here because we want to get better at something. We want to improve as individuals, either personally or professionally, or maybe a bit of both. And that was my first time really associating in that kind of environment and and having that non-judgmental support. Wow. I was like, this is great. And and so it just opened my perspective up, you know, that, man, there's, there's other ways of living life that I haven't even entertained. Got me started. That's what got me started. And I have been actively involved with Toastmasters on and off for, for 11 years now. It's been a big reason why I've been able to do what I've done. And uh, I, I'm so grateful for that. It, it was the the catalyst that sort of 
opened up some other opportunities as as things progressed over the next few years following that. It's interesting because when people make a choice to try to make a dramatic change in their life, there has to be something to fill that time, fill that void. And yes. for you, it was Toastmaster. Sometimes people will yeah. pick a religion or maybe they'll get into you know, athletics or whatever it might be to take up that time because, man, sometimes just sitting around with time on your hands can be a danger. So, no, that worked out really well for you. And, of course, I know that I guess it was maybe four or five years after this when you kind of made that big choice to you know take that time off with your family. And, and maybe that's where we need to talk about now. Well, it started to open my eyes to, to just the fact that maybe life isn't so linear. You know, like, cause really up to that point, I just always thought, okay, well, I want to get to a destination. What's the straight line to get there? You know, I, I never considered that maybe there's a different ways of doing things. Maybe there's a different way that I could live life. Maybe it's not a matter of just having a family, getting a career, working that career for 40 years, retiring, you know, like, and then spending the next 20 or plus years, you know, hanging out with my grandkids and maybe traveling. And, you know, just that was my belief system. That's what I believed I was meant to be doing. And so that was the path I was following. My business partner at the time, uh, the CEO of the company, I was the COO, CMO. And uh, I, you know, he's 20 years my senior, my first real business mentor. And and to be honest, a life mentor as well, when I first met him in my early 20s. And, and I had been working with him for upwards of 17 years before I left. And there was a, a very scary moment, you know, about three, three and a half years after that moment of deciding no alcohol. You know, so I had three years of just working on myself, working on family, prioritizing the things that I valued as, you know, those non-negotiable values, you know, the ones that were like, if we had a conversation 20 years from now, Larry, and you asked me, die, what are your core values? What are most important to you in life? I'd, I'd probably give you the same answers I give you today. You know, mm-hmm. they're that important in the foundation of, of our lives. And uh, I realized, and, and this is, I don't know if, People relate to this. I often, when I've spoken about this, I, I, I often get people nodding or, or, or affirming that they too have experienced this, where I, I realized that as I, you said it earlier, you, you know, I removed that crutch. So now I'm learning how to walk again, but I also freed up a lot of time, energy and, and resources uh, because I didn't have the drinking. I didn't have the downtime from feeling like garbage because of too much drinking. And so all of a sudden I had all this extra time and space and some of the hard questions that I was asking myself, like, what do I want for my life? What's going to make me happy? What do I want for my family? You know, what's the kind of man that I want to be? You know, these bigger questions, I had space to actually sit with it and look for answers. Or <laughs> Before that, I wouldn't even ask the question because I honestly didn't have the faculties to even answer it or know where to begin. And so here I was asking myself, well, what do I want for my life? You know, and I'm mid thirties at this time. And I'm like, geez, Okay, I'm 35. Is this where I'm meant to be? Like, is this it? You know, at that point, I'm I'm into my career well over a decade, and I've been building this company, and uh, we we grew it to the point we had eight retail stores, a couple of B2B enterprises, we had e-commerce all across Canada, manufacturing in three other countries outside of North America, and you know, we really built quite a an operation. And I believe that that's what I was meant to be doing. So for the longest time, I always believed that this is what I'll be doing forever, you know, until I can't. And the more I started to think about it and look at it, and as I was growing as an individual, as a man, as a father, as a husband, I started to realize a lot of these visions and dreams I've been working towards of the life I wanted were actually the life of somebody else. (laughs) And it was very much that first business mentor and lifestyle mentor of mine. 
you know, my, my, literally my boss, my partner at the time, 20 years, my senior. Cause I looked at his life. I looked at his kids. I looked at his marriage. I looked at all the stuff he had amassed and all this, the accolades he had collected. And I was like, that's what I was chasing. I was chasing his life. And all of a sudden here I am at 35 thinking maybe this isn't what I'm meant to be doing. And that left me feeling really scared. <laughs> Cause I'm like, if this isn't what I'm supposed to be, what am I supposed to be doing? Because I realized that continuing to do this for another 20 years just didn't make me feel very happy. It actually made me feel very much the opposite, sad and, and like, oh my gosh, is this it? When I came to that realization, I was like, okay, well, there's something else I'm meant to be doing. So if I'm not doing this, what will I be doing? And it started to create that space to explore that. And, and meanwhile, you know, all this personal and professional development, especially dealing with a lot of that old trauma and working through that, doing the internal work, I was growing. I was growing a lot, exponentially more than I'd ever grown before. And, and so the belief in myself also started to, to grow. You know, and, and so I started working online, just creating content to help people, just especially in the health and wellness space, you know, in the mindset space, you know, sharing a bit of what I was going through, some of the things that I was doing. I, I was very open in what I would share on my blog. And it just started to grow organically to the point that my personal brand outgrew our corporate brand that we'd spent 17 years together building, <laughs> which also created a, a little bit of uh, tension. You know, uh, in the relationship there, because it's like, well, what are you actually doing? Are you building your own brand, your own company? Or are you you helping build this one that we, that he obviously was the majority shareholder in? So uh, it's his fiduciary responsibility to make sure that partners are towing that line as well, uh, which I didn't want to tow any longer. And uh, so I gave notice at, at 35 that, you know, about 20 months from now, I'd like to, to leave the organization and I'm not really sure what I'm going to do, but. My wife and I want to spend time with the family, we want to do a little bit of traveling. We want to just try living life a little bit differently in, in alignment with things that we want, like time with each other. <laughs> like, that was the big thing because obviously working, building a company and everything else, uh, my time was my one commodity I had in least amount. Uh, so th- that was what started as that that catalyst. And and for those next 20 months, it was my wife and I just leaning into a lot of the things that we had talked about wanting to do from the time that we had first met each other, you know, uh, back in my early 20s. And, you know, she's always someone who's passionate about travel and we started having kids. So we were always like, oh, when we when the kids move out one day, we'll travel. And we started thinking, well, why do we have to wait? You know, can we travel as a family? Fortunately for my wife, she started looking into traveling families and there was a lot of people out there doing that. We, I had no idea. I had no idea that people could travel around the world, be rather nomadic, educate their kids. Like It was completely novel to me. And yet she started dripping on me, these little podcasts. And, uh, and that's really where that Jerry Maguire moment happened. You know, I wrote a personal manifesto, a personal manifesto of what I wanted to see happen in my personal and professional life. Gave it to my business partner at the time. He didn't read it. Didn't even read it. And, you know, meanwhile, at that time, we'd been together for 15 years. He was my first real mentor. And I expected him. Like, I saw him as a father, and he didn't read it. And I was, like, so hurt. <laughs> so hurt at the time. And I was like, you know what? Now I really need to change this. And uh, and that's what really cemented in the decision. Well, it's not going to be just a year. I'm never coming back. So I made that decision. I quit. <laughs> I literally quit a career. Quit a company I'd been building for 17 years. And a uh, month after that, my wife quit her job. And then after that... Two months later, we pulled the kids out of school, gave away all of our stuff, kept our SUV, whatever we could pack in the back, we kept, everything else we got rid of. We just started driving. <laughs> we went south. 
you know, I, I had also, my, my first book was being published at the time. So we sort of coincided a book release and launch along with us kicking off this, this family adventure. And uh, we started chasing the sun heading south and eventually ended up in California where we stayed a few months and started traveling around a bit. I, I had some opportunities based on what I was building online. I had some opportunities in the influencer marketing space to, to have some trips, having some talks, uh, working with some very uh, established brands. And it opened up my eyes to all these cool possibilities. You know, like we even did some work with Disney and they took me and my family down there for a week, you know, and just put us up. And I was like, whoa, this is crazy. I didn't even think this is possible. And just starting to really realize that things are possible. So yeah, I, I, I don't want to sound cryptic, but it, it was this, just this realization that, you know what, if we want to make some changes, let's just start living the changes. We may not have it all figured out. We may not know what's going to happen next, but we're together. This is an adventure we're adopting. And what is the worst that could happen? I was, my wife and I would often have very uh, telling conversations where there was a lot of fear, right? We, I mean, we had a lot of fear. I'm leaving a career, a very established career. You know, I was easily top of my game at the time, great income, profit sharing. Like we were, we were good. People looked at me and they thought you are nuts, you know, cause just that was the, the perception. You know, people are just, you're crazy. You're, you, why are you leaving that? You've been working your whole life to get there and you're there and now you're leaving. And it was like, you yeah, know, I'm done. I'm gone. I, I wanted to do things different. And uh, my wife was a big proponent for that. And away we went. It was okay. Cause we knew we were both employable. Worst case scenario, we come back, we live with our parents for a little bit. We get set up, we get jobs, we get right back to what we were doing. That was the worst that could happen, like really in our own minds. And uh, as you wrestle with the worst that can happen, or as Tim Ferriss says, fear setting, you start to realize it's okay. We can do this. You know, like what is the worst thing that can happen? The worst thing that can happen? We stop traveling, we go home, we get jobs and away we go. No problem. I can deal with that. Can you deal with that? Yeah, I can deal with that. Great. Let's go. And uh so that was it. And and Larry, you know, we, we stayed in North America predominantly for the first few years because my dad was sick, uh, dealing with issues with his pancreas and uh, eventually progressed to pancreatic cancer. And uh, we were very fortunate because of what had happened, you know, for me giving up alcohol to then developing all these new skills and lifestyles and belief systems and getting solid with family and my values, which translate into us eventually me leaving a career, her leaving her career, us having a more flexible lifestyle that had more command over our time when my dad got sick. And it was like, you know, this is it. It's just a matter of time now. We had the ability to just pick up, pack up the SUV, drive to Ontario and spend those last six months with him, you know, at that end of life phase or journey of his, of the last part of his life. And so I, I always, and people sometimes think I'm, I'm overly optimistic, but I do believe things happen for a reason. And had all those things not transpired, we wouldn't have had that opportunity to to have been with him during those final stages. And uh, so I'm I'm very grateful for that. And and so that's why I always try to glean meaning from whatever I do, obviously. But uh, uh, th that's just one of those pieces. And then after he passed, we went overseas. We lived in Bali for a couple of years while we traveled around Southeast Asia. And uh, yeah, and I don't I don't mean to skirt over that part. Obviously, there's lots of other stories there. But that that sort of almost brings us up to date. <laughs> There's two things that really stand out to me in listening to that time where you left the security of the corporate life, if you will. Yeah. Your wife was on board. And the other thing that stands out is that maybe you at 35 could understand what many people don't realize until they're at the end of their life. Mm. You didn't want to have any regrets. You didn't want to say, gosh, I wish I would have done this. I, yeah. I should have taken that opportunity when I could have, because I had similar feelings like that. For me, I mean, mine was more in my fifties when I did that. And 
mm-hmm. we opted to move to Maui for a, a couple of years. But Love the it. thing is, I just didn't want to get to the end and have those regrets because yeah. that's what a lot of people have when you say, when you ask them to look back over their life, you know, what would you have changed? Gee, I wish I would have just done this, or I wish I would have taken more chances. Or I wish I would have yeah. not just held on for the security of staying with the same job or whatever. So now I applaud you for doing those things and for realizing at 35 that, Hey, there is another, you know, map that I've kind of mapped out for myself. Yeah. Thanks for, for, for making note of that. Cause it was very much front of mind for me, you know, that idea of, of, cause Christy would often bring it up. Actually. She, she's like, you know, when we're in our fifties and the kids are off doing whatever they're doing, living their lives. If we reflect back on this time when we were in our mid thirties at the time, so, uh, or, or later thirties, by the time I left, uh, we didn't want to have the conversation like, you know, I really wish we went and we did that thing. You know, we went and traveled as a family when we had the opportunity before the window where our kids thought we were cool closed, you know, like <laughs> they were young enough that and sweet enough that they they enjoyed being around us. And so we wanted to capitalize on that. And, and there was a lot of other motivations there too, but we didn't want to have the conversation from that perspective of regret. You know, later on, especially after my my going through that end of life process with my dad, uh, I, I sort of dove into a lot of this piece around mortality, right? And and because obviously in my own mind, I, I was you know approaching 40, um, seeing my father go through those health issues from the time that he had literally uh, retired, sold his practice and was riddled with some health issues ever since he retired to, to eventually passing at a young age of 72. And he was a young 72. It, it was my first personal real close family member I've ever lost, you know? And so going through that process, it just opened my eyes to a lot of things and, and how I was looking at things and made me just question my own mortality and my own life. I, I discovered on that journey, you know, uh, some work by Bronnie Ware out of Australia who wrote The Five Regrets of the Dying. And I don't know if you've heard of that, Larry, but it's a wonderful, uh, she actually does a TED Talk on it as well. But when you dive into that and you look at these people at end of life and these five common regrets that were almost universal of all the people that she interviewed, it opens your eyes. You know, like you start thinking, whoa, are those regrets that I'm going to have? What? Well, no. <laughs> and here's why I'm choosing not to, to live a life where that would be the regret that I create. And one of the ones that always sat with me is people, you know, she would often ask people at end of life because uh, she was an end of life uh, a nurse. So she was there to an RN helping people with that final journey, that final stage. And very often these people were alone and by themselves. And she would has a wonderful bedside manner. So she'd interview these people, have these conversations about, is there anything you regret? And almost all of them had the same answers. Sometimes all five of the regrets are, are a combination of a couple of them. But the one that always jumped out at me was, I wish I lived the life I wanted to live, not the life others expected of me. That one just, it, it constantly rings in my mind, you know, because I often would question a lot of the motivation for doing what I would do would be the accolades I was seeking or the people I'd want to connect with or the perception I'd want of who I am from others, you know, uh, and, and it was always very much driven that way. And I started to say, well, gosh, why am I doing it? Am I doing it for them then? Or am I doing it for me? And, and so it shifted my perspective and my, my, the lens changed, you know, through which I, I started to look and evaluate some of my motivations and my choices for doing what I do. And, and it's provided an excellent way of sort of screening <laughs> some of the choices, right? You know, as, as life will throw at us, lots of opportunities to choose different things and different paths and opportunities. And I, I used to deal with a lot of FOMO, you know, that fear of missing out on something. So I would often overcommit. 
and then feel stressed out and, and disconnected with some of the things I was doing. Cause I'd be like, why did I say yes to this? This is the dumbest thing. Yeah. So it, it's been a, just a crazy ride these last five years uh, since leaving my, well, I guess six years now since I left my career in, in the corporate space. But uh, man, I don't regret it a single day. I'll tell you that right now. Well, and there's the key. No regrets. That's right. I tell you, I, I've uh, enjoyed listening to your story. And I, I want to make sure that we give just a, a moment to you to talk about, I think you yourself have a new podcast coming out soon. Do you not? Yeah. Yeah. A, a podcast as well as uh, a full redesign of my website. And uh, yeah, some fun stuff coming down the pipe for 2021. It feels like it's a, a one of those years I'm building into it, as well as a, I have a TEDx talk actually scheduled for this spring, which is uh, April 2021, which I'm really, really excited. It's been on my vision board ever since, you know, when I left my career, right? Six years ago, I, I created a vision board of things that were important to me and things I wanted to achieve. And that TED talk has been on there ever since. So I, I'm really excited that that one's finally coming to fruition. And uh, I, I do a lot of work in the men's space and uh, I, I run, uh, I, I, there's no hidden agenda here. Like the, the events that we run or we host for men is, is always free. There's no hidden agenda. It's just bringing men together to, to share what's real for themselves, you know, and, and to, to have a place where they can share openly, practice the skill of vulnerability without any fear of judgment or things that they say being used against them. And uh, we call those Mentorship Mondays. So men... Mentorship Mondays. Uh, we meet every Monday night uh, on Zoom or in person in various places around the world. And, and uh, it's just been a wonderful experience. And I've uh, been doing that for two and a half years now. And uh, it's largely what's inspiring the TEDx talk. A little bit of my own story, but also how this, this idea of vulnerability has worked in to allow me some amazing opportunities in my life, but some, some wonderful connections and relationships uh, have come as a result. And so I'll be sharing a little bit about that. You're doing some great things, man. And, uh, and, and I think that that also gives that fulfillment that we all need. You know, I think you talked about you were doing a lot of things for the praise of others and you wanted yeah. to hear those accolades. And now you're getting maybe some accolades, but for a different set of reasons. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really, I do a lot of the things because it's things that I feel need to be done. Do you, do you know what I mean? Like, it's just this, just trying to show up to try to help others. And I realize the only way to do that and is just being a role model. You know, and, and, and so I always ask myself, it's like, how can I show this rather than tell, <laughs> you know, that show versus tell. And my wife and I, many years ago, when we decided to be very open on our social media platforms, we're like, well, we're, we're just going to show people how we're dealing with some of the challenges, but also dealing with life and rather than telling people different ideas and stuff to do. Why don't we just show them? We'll, we'll be a role model. We'll be an example. And, uh, you know, at times it, it might be a little bit raw is, re let me just put it this way. It, we're a little bit raw at times, but you know, raw and real, it's our deal as we like to say. <laughs> and uh, I, I always welcome people to, to connect with us. You know, I, I'm always open to conversations and just, just meeting really cool people. That's why Larry, I was so attracted to your platform because wow, it's just so cool. You, you know, that, that you take it upon yourself to, to just create a space for people to share some stories and pull from it what meaning they can and, and hopefully inspire, motivate, educate others in a fun way that, you know, life isn't linear. Life is what we make it. You know, it's, it's one heck of an adventure, but uh, we got to choose to be the adventurer. So I, I really want to thank you just for creating this platform, but also uh, giving me the opportunity to come and chat to you today. I really feel honored for it. I tell you, here's the thing. You and I 
are very similar in that way. I think that we both enjoy people. And mm. if you're a people person, then you like hearing their stories. You like communicating. The, the expression in, in Hawaii is talk story. And mm. I mean, I enjoy that. That's just something that brings me uh, joy. And I do learn from others. And like you said, if we can share some of the things that we've learned along this uh, you know road of life with other people, then that's a positive. You know, That's what life's all about. And we need it right now with all the craziness going on in the world. Oh man, do we ever, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, it's amazing. Listen, I'm really looking forward to, to getting my podcast off the ground this this next few months. And uh, Larry, I'll be reaching out to you because I, I can't wait to share your story. And just, uh, man, it, there's some pretty amazing stuff uh, listening to that episode of you. Right? I forget the name of your friend that interviewed you during that episode, but uh, thought it was just so great and uh, hearing your story. And I just, I, I saw a lot of parallels you know, between things that I've been doing and things that you've already done. So it was just really inspiring to hear that and to realize that it never stops, you know, it just keeps moving on. That's right. It's, it's it. life and it just keeps it moving is. on. Yeah. Yeah. Super. All cool. right, Di. Thanks again. Thanks for being a part of uh, Nobody Knows Your Story. And now people know your story and, and do check back with us when you have your podcast up and going. And I'll, I'll be sure to, you know, let my listeners know where they can, uh, can find you and follow your story even further. Really appreciate that. Thanks again so much, Larry. And uh, listen, aloha. (laughs) All right. Aloha, everyone. Catch you again in two weeks.